Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 59 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.30, it is the first of my two-segment chat with comedian Maz Jabrani, ahead of his headlining shows at Creek in the Cave tonight and tomorrow. At 6.15, I'm taking a look at Super Bowl prop bets with Sammy P. And a mere seconds, we are now a major step closer to a new era of college football that will leave the NCAA in its wake. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, if you've listened to me on these or perhaps other airwaves for a while, you know that I have long advocated and been a longtime believer in the idea that college football will eventually evolve to a point where there is a different highest tier of the sport. A highest tier that based on how things have shaken out over the last couple of years and what's about to happen with conference realignment will leave college football with two conferences at the top and everybody else in a secondary category. Those two conferences, of course, the SEC and the Big Ten, I initially thought, going back to when I was predicting this five-plus years ago, that we would still have four power conferences, each comprised of 16 teams, to make up 64 total teams, of course. And that would encapsulate the top flight of college football. But as things currently stand, no, there's not going to be four. There's going to be two. That would be the Big Ten and the SEC. How many total members each conference ends up with is another fascinating conversation, especially since the Big Ten decided to blow past that 16 number that the SEC will stand at with Texas and Oklahoma joining. But ultimately, it will be these two conferences playing the highest level of college football with everybody else in I don't know, Division Two, whatever you want to end up calling that. The Big Ten, what's left of the ACC after Florida State carves a way out for all of its member institutions or those who are capable of leaving and joining one of the bigger conferences. The Big 12, of course. What's left of the Pac-12, Mountain I mean, just all the, uh, all the group of six conferences are also going to be at this level, too. And my prediction was that this would happen following the 2025 season. The next two years, you get that expanded 12-team playoff, but they're still working on the TV deal starting in 26. And with a revamped TV deal comes an opportunity for those schools and those conferences that have the most power, that have the most leverage. And we're seeing a major step in that direction today as being reported by Pete Thamel of ESPN, Bruce Feldman of The Athletic, and plenty of others at this point too. And that would be this, and I'm just going to read Bruce Feldman's tweet from just before noon today. 
The Big Ten and SEC have announced the formation of a joint advisory group of university presidents, chancellors, and ADs to address significant challenges facing college athletics and opportunities for the betterment of the student-athlete experience. Read that however you will, but just know this. This means that college football is about to separate itself from all other college sports in terms of how it's going to be governed. Now, whether or not the Big Ten and SEC decide to break all of their sports away from the NCAA model, I'm not totally sure about that. I don't know how that works. I think that could be wrought with problems that would force them to ultimately walk that one back. But for college football... Maybe some of the other most popular sports, although I do doubt that, including with men's and women's basketball, baseball, softball, volleyball, since Texas is now a volleyball school. I think they ultimately stay within some semblance of what the NCAA is doing right now. But for college football, this is the beginning of the end of NCAA having any say-so at the highest level. They continue to try and wield their authority, as we saw with that Tennessee story from earlier this week. I know I talked about that within the last couple of days, how Tennessee is pushing back, just like Michigan was pushing back on the NCAA's attempts to crack down on them for various things. The Tennessee charges have to do with NIL and breaking the NIL slash transfer portal rules. Still an investigation right now, by the way. Tennessee hasn't been charged with anything. That was a sort of final straw. Tennessee said, no, this is BS. You're trying to make an example out of us. The problem with trying to wield authority is if you don't have respect, you don't have the authority. You can try and discipline if you want to, but again, if you don't have the respect, you can't discipline because you don't have the authority. That supposed authority will be ignored. And that is what is happening across college football right now at the highest levels. The NCAA may still have some say-so with that second tier, that Division II, that second division, whatever it is, whatever it's called. They have blown the opportunity to remain involved at the highest level of college football. Not just for how they've conducted themselves over the last few years and how slow they've been to adapt and help lead the way in this new era of college football with NIL and the transfer portal, which has been made a bigger mess by the NCAA. Make no bones about it. I realize that there are lawsuits, and the NCAA is basically just trying to allow anything goes, in a sense, to avoid a judgment day with the numerous lawsuits that they're now facing. Which, by the way, does include the state of Tennessee, and I believe the state of South Carolina now, too because of the arbitrary way with which they go about trying to enforce their rules. I think it was an antitrust, excuse me, it was an antitrust lawsuit that is being filed against them by the states of Tennessee and South Carolina. So enjoy it while you can, NCAA. You may still get to be in charge of the Olympic sports. You might still get to be in charge of March Madness each and every year the College World Series, the College Softball World Series, things like that. You need to get out of the way as it pertains to college football. 
Because going back decades now, you have been operating five to ten years behind the times. Fighting battles that have already been decided in the past. And as a result, you have proven to everybody involved that your presence isn't necessary. As a matter of fact, it's not just distracting, it's annoying at this point. And this is with presidents and athletics directors trying to give Charlie Baker the benefit of the doubt to help get legislation passed on the federal level to help with NIL. Thus helping with the transfer portal too. But here we are, a year, I want to say, into all of this, or into the attempts to get some sort of legislation passed, and we're at a standstill. Even the NCAA's most recent idea, which would allow, or which would force collectives under the umbrella of athletics departments, one that is something that makes a lot of sense, you're still trying to deny the idea that the student-athletes aren't employees, and that's a non-starter for a lot of people. I realize that's what the schools want you to do. That's a non-starter for a lot of people, and it doesn't make any sense to try and pass something with those parameters. So I'm excited to learn what this joint advisory group comes up with. I have a pretty good idea of where we're headed, but I wanted you to be in the know as well to understand that this is a big day for the future of college football. All right, coming up, talking prop bets. That's right, Super Bowl prop bets with my guy, Sammy P. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It is a Friday at 6.15. Means it's time for another conversation with one of the best in the business. It is Sam Paniatovich. He is the lead handicapper at Nesson in Boston. Also contributes to FoxSports.com. Hosts the Chicken Dinner Podcast. Can be found on Twitter at SPShoot. And here on this very show on Fridays during football season. Yeah, this is an off week, but guess what? Super Bowl prop bets just came out last night. That includes some... Taylor Swift bets, of course. So who better to talk to about that than my buddy, Sammy P. What's up, Sam? How are we doing this week? Well, I'm doing okay today. If you would have asked me that question on Sunday night or Monday morning, I would have been like, uh, I'm pretty ticked off because, man, I, uh, I got smoked last week. And smoked is a relative term. I mean, to lose three out of four bets is not the worst thing in the world. Um, and we've had a pretty decent season. I'll let you vouch. Um, it was just, I had the Ravens in the first half and, and they turned Lamar Jackson into a passer. I had the Niners minus seven. They're up 10 with <laughs> a minute to go. And, uh, the Lions score on fourth and goal from inside the five. It's just, it, it's one of those days. Um, I'm not happy about it, but we move on. And yeah, like you said, there's, about a thousand different props that I found. Uh, 500 came out last night in Vegas. They've had some at DraftKings and FanDuel and MGM. Circuit came out with more today. So there's probably right now with, what, nine days ago, there's probably a thousand different ways right now to bet the game. It is fitting, I guess, that compassionate meathead Dan Campbell screws you in the end because they very easily could have, 
I don't know, not run the ball in third down and ended up having to kick a field goal or kicked a field goal earlier in that drive with all three timeouts left, but they got too close to the end zone, so he had to go for the touchdown there, and that ultimately sunk you in the 49ers pick that you had, and I'll tell you, I did not see Baltimore, their game plan, or lack thereof coming. I mean, you would assume that if nothing else, they are going to try really hard to run the football, but they abandoned it pretty early. I mean, neither of the running backs gets more than three carries. Lamar has eight the entire game, and they're trying to turn him into a pocket passer against a defense that was one of the best of the league this year at defending the pass, too. And I guess that's another one of those reasons why we have to watch these games play out, because... We can have all the knowledge and information in the world, but ultimately you have no idea what's actually going to happen in the end. And that line opened up in Vegas, the AFC title game. It opened up Baltimore minus three, and it got bet all the way out to four and a half, five. By kickoff, it was five at some books in this country. I mean, the books were in a very precarious situation. They were rooting for the Chiefs. They were rooting for Mahomes to win, and the books got what they wanted because the Sharps bet Baltimore early, the public piled on late, and then Lamar Jackson thought he was playing against Memphis or Cincinnati and not Kansas City. You know, he, thought, <laughs> he was making throws like he was facing a college team when he was at Louisville. The one throw to me still, and I, I, I want to move on after this, the throw to the end zone where there were three Chiefs and one Raven, what are you doing? Brutal. Just I'm over it, though. I'm over it. <laughs> All right. So uh, we move on now to prop bets, and you've uh, poured over 30, oh, God, almost 40 pages of prop bets that you emailed me last night. What are some things that uh, stick out to you right now, just in terms of wacky prop bets or maybe things that you are considering putting a little bit of dough on? So I do like the way the Superbook does the cross-sport props. They'll basically take the game itself and then they'll take a star player from an NBA game or a college basketball game on that same day. And they also do this with golf. Uh, You could bet like, you know, Jordan Spieth fourth round score against Travis Kelsey receiving yards. It's it's pretty cool. You know, they, they get super creative because as we've talked about for years, the more candy in the candy aisle, the more likely you are to leave with candy. I mean, if there were two props, people might not bet them, but if there's 500 props, you're going to get something that, Makes you go, ooh, I like that. So I'll rip through these quickly. These are my four favorite ones. You can bet Travis Kelsey in the first half, his receiving yards, against Caitlin Clark, the star guard for the Iowa women's basketball team. So who has more? Travis Kelsey yards in the first half or Caitlin Clark points? And Kelsey's side is a a three-and-a-half-point favorite. So he has to have basically, let's say she has 30 points. Kelsey has to have 34 or more yards in the first half. I'd take I'd take Clark, honestly. You take Clark. See, I think I'd take Kelsey because I feel like Kelsey has been doing a majority of the damage that he's inflicted in these playoffs in the first half. Maybe I'm wrong about that, though. Nebraska, not the greatest uh, women's basketball team in the world, though, Trey Ball. Um, I don't know how much Nebraska Huskers women's ball you've watched. <laughs> Zero. They might, they might give up 40 in this one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess she does uh, She does tend to go over 40 against bad defenses. That's my guess, anyhow. I haven't watched a second of women's basketball. Are you betting on women's college basketball, by the way? We do it in the tournament, no doubt, because those lines are, let's just say they're not right. I didn't used to bet on it. I used to think it was kind of degenerate. But then I, I met a guy who lives in Vegas who he'll bet a, he'll bet a total in a college 
women's tournament game. Like he'll bet a total under 130. It'll close 122. That's how, that's how fickle those markets are. Like, for example, if you're going to bet $1,000 on the under in the Super Bowl, the total's 47.5, it's not going to move off 47.5. Mm-hmm. If you bet 1000 on a women's college basketball game, if they even let you bet that much, because a lot of people can't get that much down at one shop, it'll move two, three points if you're good at it. And then people start to chase it. So, yeah, if you have good numbers in, in women's college basketball, and this also plays into the College World Series. The best guy I know made his most money last year in the women's tournament and in the college world series, because those markets are beatable and the bookmakers don't know where to put these lines. Interesting. All right. So your next cross sports wager has to do with the chiefs and then an NBA player. Well, this is Jimmy Butler, uh, our former cousin from Chicago. When we worked there, he was a bull star back in the uh, middle 2010s. So this prop is basically you get the first half of the Super Bowl, you get the Chiefs and the Niners, total points. Will that be more than Jimmy Butler's point total against the Celtics? It's basically a coin flip. So let's say it's 14-14 at half. That's 28. If you take that side, you need Jimmy Butler to have 25 or less. Okay. I have no thoughts on it. I just love how creative they get. The next one, the next one excuse me, is called the octopus. And if you don't know what the octopus is, ask your six-year-old child. The octopus has eight legs. So the octopus is somebody has to score a touchdown and then also cross the goal line on the two-point conversion, thus completing the eight-point octopus. And we did see this last year. Jalen Hurts did it. He rushed for a touchdown, got the two-point conversion, it rarely happens, though, Trey. So I, I guess my advice here would be don't bet it. The yes is 12 to 1, and I promise you the books want you to bet the yes. Yeah, and the no is minus 2,000, too. So bet 2,000 to win 100. Those are not nah, good odds. Nah. And you McCaffrey also have no touchdown. This, this seems like the, the biggest waste of a bet of all. No touchdown in the game, 400 to 1. I knew this would rile you up, but I promise you, there are going to be a handful of people that look at that and go, huh, you know, I can bet $10 and win 4000 and And that's what they want you to do. Props like these, you know, will there be a safety? Will there be an octopus? Will neither team reach, you know, 10 points? Will no touchdowns be scored? They take those numbers and they ratchet up the price. Like, in all honesty, no touchdown should probably be like 800 to 1. Really, it should. I mean, do we really think there's not going to be a touchdown? Even in that awful Patriots and Rams game from, I believe, 2019, the 2018 season, the 2019 Super Bowl, that was 13 to 3, and we were, we were getting late in the game, and it was like, uh-oh, is somebody going to score? And then eventually you got that touchdown. But, yeah, I would be stunned if nobody scored. And, again, the true price – it's not 400 to one. It's probably double that. All right. And last of all, we have some Taylor Swift themed bets because yes, you can bet on everything these days. Is there a Taylor Swift themed bet that jumps out to you? Not really. I know you're as excited as I am to bet on Taylor Swift. I did see uh, STN in Vegas is offering a tight end against pop star bet. You basically, 
you need Travis Kelsey to have more catches than Taylor Swift has platinum albums. She has 10, so you need 11 catches for Kelsey. That's plus 450. I, I don't know about that. And then this one's interesting because I think there's a better bet to make. FanDuel's offering, will the Super Bowl MVP mention Taylor or Swift or Taylor Swift? The odds are 6-1, to one, which I hate. But then you look across the page and you go, wait a minute, Travis Kelsey is 17-1 to one to win the MVP. Which chief, aside from him, is mentioning Taylor Swift? Yeah, because if a chief is winning the MVP trophy, it's going to be Pat Mahomes, if not Travis Kelsey, but more likely Pat Mahomes. I don't see Pat Mahomes mentioning Taylor Swift. I don't either. Usually the MVP either mentions the team, the coach, or the Lord. That's usually how it works. I don't like, let's just say one of the secondary guys on Kansas City picks off Purdy, runs it back to the house for a game-changing Super Bowl interception touchdown. Do you think he's going to mention Taylor Swift? My point is that rather than bet the yes at 6-1 to one if you're so inclined, just bet Kelsey at 17-1. to one. It's basically the same bet. Great call. That's why I have him on every week. He is the best in business. We'll talk to him one more time this football season. That's before the Super Bowl next Friday. It is Sam Paniotovich of Nesson in Boston, a contributor to FoxSports.com, host of the Chicken Dinner Podcast. Find him on Twitter at SP Shoot and hear him on this show Fridays during football season. Sam, thank you for the time. Enjoy a weekend free of football, I guess. I'll do my best, buddy. Yeah, I'm not watching the Pro Bowl or any of that. Forget that. Thanks, Trey. Coming up, it's the first of a two-segment conversation with comedian Maj Jabroni ahead of his headlining shows at Creek in the Cave tonight and tomorrow night right here on Sports Day Plus. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Maj Jabroni is a longtime stand-up comedian and actor whose acting credits include everything from Friday After Next to Curb Your Enthusiasm. As a comedian, you can check out his newest stand-up special, The Birds and the Bees, for free on YouTube through his channel, or you can check him out live this weekend here in Austin. He's headlining at Creek in the Cave Friday and Saturday, two shows each night. Go to creekandcave.com to snag those tickets. Oz, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great and uh, excited to have you in Austin this weekend. I'm not totally sure, so I'm just going to ask, have you had a chance to perform stand-up in Austin in the past? I have performed stand-up in Austin a couple of times in the past. One time, it was kind of funny, one time um, MySpace, as MySpace was um, ending its run, they started doing these things called uh, the super secret comedy shows Hmm. where they would like announce on you know the night before two nights before and then the place would fill up well i caught the tail end of that so it was at a point where nobody was on myspace so they're like let's do a super secret comedy show for you at um i think it's called cap cities and i was like let's do it and then as like as we approached the date they were like oh we've only had like 10 rsvps and i'm like well what's going on they go well you know myspace it really isn't a thing anymore i was like well then why am i doing this with you but it was fun. The audience was fun. We had a good time, and we ended up last minute, you know, getting more people to come out. And then I came back one other time. Um, I do a show on NPR called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which yeah. is a fake news quiz. So we came to the – I think it's the – is it the Paramount Theater there? In, yeah. In, in, 
Yeah, we came out and did two nights at the Paramount, and that was fun. They, uh, they, they, it was leading up to Christmas, not this year, I think the year before. Okay. So they had some like Christmas event going on, and since the NPR was the co-sponsor of the Christmas event, they took me and the other comedians out to their big Christmas thing, and they had us kind of join in with the carolers for a minute. It was kind of, it was kind of funny. Um, but I love, I love Austin. I mean, who doesn't love Austin? I'm, I'm excited. This is my first time headlining a legit show in Austin, so I'm really happy. Yeah, Creek in the Cave is a really fun room. I know that the Saturday early show is already sold out, and these other shows will sell out as well. So go to creekandcave.com to snag tickets for uh, Mazda shows. Friday night, 7 and 9, I believe. That Saturday night, 9, 8, 9 p.m. show is still available. And I'm on the inside here, so I don't know how big of a deal this is elsewhere. You, uh, I believe your roots are in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. One of your home clubs is the Comedy Store, which is obviously uh, – been a long-time hotspot for stand-up comedy. New York also qualifies, California to a lesser degree. Austin finds itself as a sort of stand-up mecca all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere. Uh, is this something that people in California are talking about as well, just how big of a stand-up scene uh, Cal- uh, Austin has acquired over the last couple of years? Well, I don't know if people are talking about it as much, but I think people have taken note. And that is, especially for me as well, because as I'm coming there, um, I know a lot of the old LA guys that are out there. So I'm reaching out and going like, Hey, I'm going to be in Austin for a couple of days. Want to grab a coffee. And it used to be, you would do that if you're going to New York or you're going to LA, but now Austin has is like the third leg in that case, because if you think about it, you know, there's obviously a lot of cities where you could do a lot of comedy, but I think the base that was set down with, you know, Joe Rogan and then all the other guys coming through, um, that, that they've set up there and now multiple comedy clubs. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely another, you know, another base of comedy. And, and I'm, and I'm excited about that as comedians, you know, it's interesting whenever I travel, uh, if I go, like if I'm in New York, for example, and I'm gigging somewhere, um, after my show, I know that I can always go down to, you know, uh, the comedy seller or something and run into some comics and just hang out all night and talk. So, um, uh, that's, that's kind of, I think Austin is starting to pick up that reputation and, uh, I'm excited for it, man. It's good, good for you guys. And, and why not? You know, it's a great city and, and I'm happy that now it's got this great comedy scene and, and a lot of comedians enjoy coming there. By the same token, the comedy store is obviously different level. I'd say comedy store and the comedy seller are the two biggest, places in the country in terms of reputation and just how good they still are. Uh, when did you start in stand-up, Maz? And at what point did you make your way to the comedy store? I started in 1998 in L.A. You know, a lot of people don't get started in L.A. They come from other places. Yeah. I started in L.A. and Because uh, I, I grew up in Northern California, and my parents, being immigrant parents, wanted me to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer. So I kind of shifted went you know tried different careers along the way and i was in my mid-20s and i said let me do this started 98 and then i think by 99 i was doing basically open mics and bringer shows at the comedy store and i was there i was there in the dark ages of the comedy store so i'd be you know i would get i used to get and, and i wasn't not a dirty comic but mitzi shore would put me up uh at like midnight after let's say joe diaz joe rogan eddie griffin andrew dice clay so it was this lineup of guys that were all monsters and they were all really like edgy and dirty. 
And then I'd be going up and trying to do my act about politics or something. And I remember having a conversation with Joe Diaz about like, why is she putting me up late? He's like, bro, she's got plans for you, bro. <laughs> and so I really, I grew there. I, uh, I always tell comedians that are starting out, I go, put yourself in the most uncomfortable position to be in, whether it's like being the opening act as people are still walking in or being the closing act as people are leaving. I said, that's where you grow. And so the comedy store was my home for the longest time. I still love that place. I still go to the comedy store uh, whenever I'm in town in L.A. And it's I, I saw it go from a place where, I mean, the dark ages were crazy. Like you show up on a Friday night and the, the original room would be half empty and the main room would be pretty much empty. Um, but now it's packed and it's got the best of the best. And even back then I had the best. You know, back then, the truth is, I was happy about it back then because there was no stakes. You'd show up and you wouldn't feel like, oh, I have to impress everybody. I could experiment and I could grow. And I did. I grew exponentially at the comedy store. And if anybody ever comes to L.A., you got to it's the mecca of comedy in many ways. And, and, I, and I highly recommend it as a place to go see. I've heard other comics talk about it being dark days in the 90s, even though there were some big time comedians there. What was the turning point for that place it's at some point in the early 2000s? Yeah, so I would say it was the like I started, like I said, in the late nineties. So it was late nineties to the early aughts. It was very interesting. So I think Mitzi, Mitzi had made people regulars that reminded her of the heyday of the eighties. Oh. So she had like a guy who kind of reminded her of Richard Pryor. She had a guy that reminded her of Jim Carrey. She had a guy that reminded her of Gary Shandling. Those guys would all be up, but they were not Richard Pryor and Gary Shandling and uh, Jim Carrey. They were they were like some of them were just not funny. And so the club had some comics who were not up to par. And then and then people just didn't want to come. Industry didn't want to come, all that stuff. And I would say probably like somewhere, probably in the mid-aughts, like 2006, 2007, 2008, they started bringing in more um, co comedians that were established, that were funny, that were then bringing people to the, to the club. And also... You had guys like Joe Rogan who was starting to do more social media type stuff. Then podcasts came in. Podcasts were a huge game changer. I remember going up at the club when Joey Diaz had his podcast. Of course, Joe Rogan has his podcast, uh, Mark Maron's podcast. And I remember telling some other comedians, I said, you know what's great about those guys bringing their fan base is that those fans are comedy fans. So we're not just performing to some random tourists that don't know what comedy is. We're performing to comedy fans, and that makes all the a world of difference because they understand comedy. They know that these are jokes. They know when to laugh. And all of a sudden, the clubs, the, the comics just seemed hotter. I mean, the, the crowds seemed hotter and hotter. And it's just continued, you know, as you get guys like Andrew Santino and Bobby Lee and, uh, um, you, know, uh, you know, Eliza Schlesinger, Netflix specials, all that stuff, every social media thing, everything has added up to the point where, I think worldwide comedy fans are more savvy now. And so when you get a comedy fan, it makes a world of difference for comedians because the worst thing for a comedian is to go up there and be like, I am slinging my best stuff and I'm getting nothing out of this audience because they don't get comedy. So I, I knock on wood, we've come to a point where a lot of these fans do get it. 
Yeah, you know, and it's interesting place also because sometimes you have to work out material, and you can you know you can go to the comedy store, and because it's a uh, a top notch crowd, they're they're going to be the great equalizer, even if they're familiar with you and you've made them laugh in the past. If uh, the joke that you're telling is not refined enough just yet, it's going to fall flat. It's not going to get that laugh, and so you're going to have to make that mental note that something needs to be done a little bit differently the next time. I feel like you know back in the day again when the stakes were even lower a lot of comedians were a lot more open to trying out new material. And I think I heard Chris Rock or somebody talk about how the, the, the uh, uh, double-edged sword of success is the more successful you are, the harder it is to try new material, go out on that plank. Cause when, when somebody says, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Rock is here. Everyone expects rock and roll, but he's there to work out material. And I've seen actually Chris Rock is a master at this. I've seen him show up at places and be like, Hey guys, lower your expectations. I'm just trying stuff out and he'll try this stuff out and then he'll hit him with the old stuff and they're with him. Uh, similarly at the comedy store now for me, what I'll do is if I have a new idea, I'll throw it right in the middle of a set that's happening. Or sometimes I'll start at the beginning and I'll just come in hot with like this idea. And I, that's where we work our stuff out. So no matter how hot of a crowd it is, you're always wanting to try stuff out. The, the biggest problem comes when the person before you just slays and you're like, oh, God, now I can't really try that new bit I was going to do. I got to go up there and follow that wave for a second. Um, but it's all, it's all, man, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, if you're a comedy fan, and I am a comedy fan, I was a fan first. Um, it's such a beautiful thing to watch and be like, and try to figure out like, okay, how do I... How do I take this person who just killed this audience and they think this person is a god? How do I follow that person and still bring in the new bit that I wanted to bring in and get my objective fulfilled? He is Maj Dabrani, headlining shows at Creek in the Cave this weekend, Friday, Saturday night. Two shows each night. Go to creekandcave.com for more info and to snag those tickets. Coming up, one more segment with Maz on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with stand-up comedian Maj Jabrani, headlining at Creek in the Cave, Friday and Saturday night. Two shows each night. Go to creekandcave.com to snag those tickets. Maj, when do you think you got really good at stand-up? Again, man, I people hit me up all the time. Hey, can you watch my clips? You know, I'm, I'm a comedian. I've been doing this for two years. And I go, listen, I don't need to watch it. You don't need my feedback on your clips. What you need to do is keep writing, keep getting on stage about five to ten times a week. After five years, you're going to start feeling pretty good. After ten years, you're actually going to be pretty good. So I remember I think about ten years in, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good. But 20 years in, I remember saying, like, I think I was on stage one time. And I was like, oh, I'm really good at this. Like, I, I even said it. And then I saw Ch- Chappelle say that in a special. And I was like, Oh, if he feels like that. He's 10 years further in. I was like, Oh, I wonder if I'll, I'm sure I'll feel even more. So it really is a Jedi thing, right? I think Seinfeld was talking about that. It really is. It was it a Seinfeld or Chris Rock? It really is a Jedi. Like, like the 10 years in, you start going like, I got this 20 years in you go, I could, I could go up anywhere. Um, and I feel that now I feel very com- comfortable and comp, you know, the audience, the audience wants to see you be comfortable. So whether you're in front of a corporate crowd or you're in front of a crowd that's a foreign crowd or whatever it is, if you are under control, the audience feels under control. And sometimes being under control 
takes you, you know, calling the elephant in the room. It's like takes you going up on stage and going like, wow, I've never done stand up, you know, in a, in a train station or wherever you are. Right. I recently did stand up at some like tennis club um, and some offside, some room off to the side of the tennis club. And I was just making fun of the fact that like, my God, I'm at a tennis club. And the same guy who booked me there had booked me to Delhi once before. And I was like, guys, this is a step up. I go, last time you booked me, I was at a deli. So they, I'm doing self-deprecating stuff, but I'm being honest. And they're seeing that I've got control. So that when I go into my material, they come with me. So that comes, that comes, you know, at least 10 years in. I, I don't think you, you feel that comfort before then. Yeah, I was talking to Donnell Rawlings a month or so ago, and he mentioned to me that he had just filmed his new stand-up special. It'll be coming out on Netflix sometime soon. And it was literally in the middle of recording uh, one of the two or three times that he was recording through that special. He had a sort of out-of-body experience, and he realized in that moment, as he's talking and, and like giving his material out to the crowd, he's like, wow, I just realized that however I choose to uh, give this to an audience, whether I'm saying it, whether I'm writing it out, whether I'm singing it, perhaps like this is going to kill regardless of how I choose to do it. I've finally reached that point in my stand-up career. You talked a little bit earlier about a concept that is so important for people nowadays because we're at a time and look, it's not easy for everybody. Some people have really hard existences, but a lot of people have really easy existences versus how things used to be. And that is putting yourself in difficult situations Um, it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. So when did that idea really start to click for you? Was it a matter of, uh, growing up as a kid who had immigrated from, uh, Iran to the Bay area at such a young age, trying to fit in with other kids around you and realizing that going through that difficulty actually made you a stronger person after a little bit. Look, I think you look back on your life and I heard Michelle Obama recently say that everything you do every day is practice for the future. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One is, um, you know, I'm a big I played soccer growing up and my wife, uh, when my son was doing club soccer, which basically takes over your life. She was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? I said, babe, it's not just him. You know, yeah, he's not going to be a professional soccer player, but it's about him learning the idea of hard work, teamwork, and getting somewhere. And I use that example of when I was in high school, we had a good team, and the idea was to put in the effort to continue to be better and, you know, win the championship. And so I used to jog. We had a hill, like it was like two miles or so. I would jog uphill to be in shape uh, for this season and we won. And I said, it's the hard work that I put in my head back then that when I end up then at the comedy clubs and I'm standing there for my midnight spot and dice comes over and he shows up and he goes, I'm going to go do 45 minutes. Now we're at 1245. Cause you know, veteran comics could bump newer guys. So then di- now we're at 1245. Then Eddie Griffin shows up. He does another 45. Now we're at, you know, one thirty. And then somebody else shows up and you end up at like 145 being the last spot. Now, a lot of other comics that were at my level at that time were getting in their cars and leaving. But I was staying. I was staying because I knew that this was finally the thing that I wanted to do. And so that was where some of that work ethic was coming in. And so no gig was a gig where I was going to leave. I wasn't going to be intimidated to not follow anybody. I followed some amazing comedians and died to death sometimes. And sometimes I learned, learned how to follow amazing comedians. I would drive all over wherever I could for like, you know, $20 gig here, you know, three hour drive for $20. It wasn't the $20. It was a 15, 20 minutes on stage. So I realized hard work 
comes in. And then the other thing about taking the risks, you know, one night there was a comedian named Freddie Soto. He, he was actually from El Paso, Texas, um, who was one of the funniest guys. He was getting ready to hit. He, back in the day, he was on tour with him, Pablo Francisco, Carlos Mencia, Bobby Lee. And Freddie was just funny, funny, funny. And one night in the original room, I had like the 145 spot. Freddie was sitting in the back where, where Mitzi's chair was right by the exit, this dark room. I couldn't really see him. I went on stage. I started doing my jokes. And the only people that were actual audience members, there was these two kind of nerdy looking guys with this one really hot girl. And I start doing my act at 145 and about you know a minute or two in where it's all lukewarm, I go, what am I doing? I just start talking to them. I go, guys, I'm curious. How did you two end up with her? What's the story here? And I just started talking to them. And then they would respond. I would respond. They're laughing. I'm laughing. I'm riffing. I'm going back into material. I'm coming out of material. And I did my 15-minute set and I came off and Freddie, who'd been sitting in the back, he goes, hey, man, you're funny. I go, thanks. He goes, yeah. He goes, it's not about the bits. He goes, you're either funny or you're not. He goes, you got that thing. And that was really uh, a, a, a big uh, encouragement point for me. And it was also a big eye-opener of you've got to put yourself in these uncomfortable positions because that's where you go past these bits that are basically your bits are are, 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 are things that you're leaning on. Your bits are your safety net. Extending yourself into the reality of the moment is where you really find out if you're funny or not. And so now, because of that muscle that I grew then, now when I do a show, I can do five, 10 minutes of just crowd work at the top, talking to people and being comfortable in that, and then going to my bits and then coming out and being honest. And there's times when I'll go up on stage and maybe a bit comes out of being honest. There's been times when like, I went, I, I don't know what was going on one day. I was just recently, like this was like a few months ago. I was just grumpy. I felt grumpy. I was, I was upset at my wife, my kids, my dog, everybody in the house for whatever reason. And I'm not a grumpy person, but I was grumpy. And I went up on stage at the Laugh Factory and I just, I just started talking. I go, guys, I'm so happy I'm here. I could talk to you guys. And I started kind of like, you know, going off on my family and my and my dog but it was fun it was like therapeutic and it was uh something that would that was also material creating because i'm in a real emotional place you know that's the best comedy is where it comes from an emotional point of view um and so yeah i think i think you just gotta you gotta be willing and able to leave the material in the safety net and just and just be all right, last question, Maz. Speaking of funny, the beginning of the end of Curb Your Enthusiasm is this Sunday, the first episode of the final season. You were in an earlier episode of this incredible series. What was that experience like? Yeah, I played in the season where Larry and David Schwimmer are doing the they're doing the producers on Broadway. Yeah. I played this Indian Sikh who worked at the hotel where Larry is uh, staying, and then I fix his air conditioner. And he doesn't tip me, and then he ends up tipping me tickets to his um, to his performance, and then I end up finding David Schwimmer's watch, and we get into a wrestling match. It was a lot of fun. I'll be honest with you. It was for comedians. Some of the most fun is when you're told to improvise. Like I was in the movie Friday After Next with uh, Ice Cube, Cat Williams, uh, uh, you know Mike Epps. The underrated Christmas movie of all time by the way. It's a great movie and it's so much fun. And that was one of those where the director is Marcus Rayboy and produced by, you know, Ice Cube. Ice Cube's smart. 
he casts comedians and he goes, improvise. Mm-hmm. So we would get the scene as is, and then it would say, look, Mike's going to go off, so just go with him. John Witherspoon was another one. I mean, it was it was made Terry Crews. It was what a great cast. But the, my favorite moments were when the improv would start, and I could just go on and on and on. And similarly with Curb, I just remember doing my my stuff with Larry, and they would be like, "Okay, Larry doesn't tip you. You're angry." And it was like, "Okay, just make it up." And I remember one time because as actors, a lot of times you got to like keep saying the same lines in the exact same way with the same hand movements that you've done in the previous take. And I remember one time I did a take on Curb and then I went to Jeff Garland. I go, hey, do you remember if I put the, je- like, you know, whatever, did, you know, move my hand this way or that way? I want to replicate it. He goes, who cares? He goes, just do it differently. I was like, oh my God, I'm so free. I can do whatever I want. So it, what a what a great experience. And actually when we filmed my episode, they flew me out to New York because it was happening in New York. Yep. And I got to actually uh, be in the same uh, episode with uh, Stephen Colbert he had a very small, this is before he had the, you know, the Colbert report and all that stuff. He had a small uh, scene in there. Uh, Paul Mazursky. Um, it was just so cool to just be around these people and hear stories. And and um, we shared the same trailer and Mazursky was telling us stories of like working with Federico Fellini. And I mean, what a, what a great, great time. And yeah, I love that show. I'm still a big fan of it. And, and I'm excited to watch this, this last season. No, that does sound like a great time. It's also going to be a great time if you make your way to Creek in the Cave this weekend to see Maj Jabrani. He is headlining shows Friday and Saturday night. Two shows Friday night, two shows Saturday. The early show on Saturday is sold out, but you can get tickets to the other shows by going to creekandcave.com. Maj, thank you so much for the time today, man. Safe travels to and from Austin. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward. Take care. All right, that is it for another week of Sports Day Plus. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back on Monday at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellings.